This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm Rick Hecht. I did the first session for those of you who are, were here. I'm research director at the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. It's my great pleasure tonight to introduce uh, one of our really uh, bright and up-and-coming postdoctoral fellows, Helen Wang. Helen is both a clinical psychologist and a neuroscientist. In her clinical practice, she works with mindfulness meditation as part of the practice. Um, She's also been very involved in the neuroscience of meditation. She trained with Richard Davidson at the University of Wisconsin in her doctoral work. For those of you who know this, Richard Davidson has done really some of the seminal work in studying the effects of meditation on the brain. Helen has been very involved in some of that work that happened over the last five years, um, including work on compassion meditation. Helen is going to bring together um, both her neuroscience and clinical psychology background tonight, and I very much look forward to hearing her talk. Great. Thank you so much, Rick, for that lovely introduction. Um, Like Rick said, I'm trained as both a neuroscientist and a clinical psychologist, so I wanted to bring all those experiences together tonight by having us practice some meditation exercises together, which I've heard you've already done earlier in the course, as well as learning um, how that impacts brain function and how that might relate to both our behavior and health. So what are we going to learn tonight? Um, You might have heard about this already, but I'm going to talk again about what mindfulness is and what is meditation, and then how does that improve health. I'm going to talk more about functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is the type of brain imaging that um, I have expertise in, and give you a better understanding of what it's actually measuring in the brain and how we look at that data. And then I'll give you a brief overview of some of the neural systems that are most implicated in meditation research. So I thought it would be nice to um, have a taste of several different types of exercises. So we're going to both practice and then learn about the neural systems for practices that impact attention. So we're going to practice focused attention to the breath, practices that impact emotional processing, and then also practices that impact how we interact with others with our social functioning. And with the scientific findings, I'll go over how how these practices impact brain functioning, some behavioral outcomes, and hopefully throughout the talk, um, we will all gain a more nuanced understanding of how we measure brain activity and how we analyze that data. So what is mindfulness and meditation? So these are just some operational definitions. And so the one for mindfulness that many of us like to use is that it's a type of attention that is focused on the present moment, it's intentional, and it's non-judgmental. So as one patient said, you mean being perfect? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, um, yes and no. It's, it's a way of trying to um, practice this way of being while knowing that none of us ever meet that all the time. And then meditation are specific practices that come from Buddhist traditions as well as some other contemplative traditions to cultivate these qualities of attention. And these practices can be applied to many internal and external experiences, so our sensory experiences, our feelings in our body, our thoughts, and our actions. And and this is thought to improve our well-being and health. So how does that happen? So I'm going to go less into the health part and really focus more on the brain. But uh, from my clinical experiences, it seems like the broad overview is that we're training attentional skills to recognize certain 
internal patterns as well as external patterns or habits. And from uh, the mindfulness community, we call this automatic pilot. So we all cultivate these habits to do what we need to do day to day, eat, brush our teeth, go to sleep. And some habits are really useful and help us get what we need to get done easily, and other habits are less useful. So by increasing awareness of our internal events, this helps us to slow down these habits. So one of my habits is when I'm bored or stressed, I like to eat chocolate. Um, (laughs) And so we can slow down the habit. um, So I'm noticing that I'm craving chocolate, and perhaps sometimes choose a new way of responding. Maybe I'll go for a walk instead of eating. And by training this kind of awareness, we think it can decrease stress. And stress can uh, chronically negatively impact the immune system. Um, We think this can help people choose healthier behaviors and also improve their social relationships. So for most of the practices, uh, people train on focusing on internal events and changing internal events. And what's really interesting is that that is thought to then transfer to other parts of our psyches and also to external events. So we think it changes the way we can think, the way we feel, um, biological processes, brain functioning, and then that leads to changes in stress, um, symptoms of depression and anxiety, and also how we interact with others. So inherent to this philosophy is that we do have the ability to change the way our minds work and how we act. And in the brain, that, that um, theory translates into neuroplasticity. So our brains are one of the most responsive organs to the environment. And so right now, your brains are lighting up by hearing my voice, by learning something. Everything we do changes our brain activity. And so I, I want to kind of demystify these um, pretty brain pictures where our brains light up. Our brains are basically doing that all the time. The question is, how does meditation impact our brain function, and how does that have broader impact on our lives? Our brains and biology are not fixed, so we originally thought that after uh, child development that our brains no longer developed, but studies have shown that um, adults are able to generate new neurons in in the brain, especially a region called the hippocampus, which is involved in learning and memory. Um, brain changes aren't that unusual either. Um, you can change your brain by learning anything. So um, studies have shown changes due to motor training, as in ju- uh, juggling, musical training, um, cognitive training, uh, playing video games, and now we're starting to see it with meditation training. So again, demystifying that meditation is in particular very special um, anything we practice will change our brain. So as a scientist, how do we study and measure these changes? So people practice meditation. There are internal events happening. And oftentimes how we uh, try to measure these processes are through self-report questionnaires. So we ask people, how much are you able to pay attention to your daily activities? Or how non-judgmental are you of your uh, internal events? And people notoriously are not that great at reporting those kind of subtle things. So we try to use... um, brain technology to really capture what is happening when people are actually practicing meditation, and then what happens in terms of how they emotionally respond to things, um, things when they're not meditating as well. So what is functional MRI? Um, it, so that's what it looks like. It's a big tube, and there's, a, there's big magnets in there, and it uses magnetic energy to measure brain function. So um, blood in our brain that has more oxygen has a different magnetic property than blood that has less oxygen. So by measuring that, we can, we can tell where there's more oxygen flowing in the brain, and that's how we uh, have a proxy of how much brain activity is happening. 
So it's actually an indirect measure. It's more about oxygen in the blood in the brain rather than the actual firing of the neurons themselves. So this gives us um, the ability to be more objective in what's happening during meditation. There's pretty good spatial resolution, which means we can see what's uh, where in the brain things are happening. And there's um, okay temporal resolution, meaning we can capture a picture of the brain every one to two seconds. There are other measures that can, can, that can measure in milliseconds, but fMRI is one to two seconds. And then the data quality really depends on um, how still the person can lie. So if you have a kid that's really hyperactive, you're not probably not going to get uh, good quality data. If their heads move, then the, the pictures get very blurry. And if people fall asleep, that's also not good data. So there, there are many things we have to keep track of when we're doing these experiments. So some basic neuroscience systems that are relevant for meditation. I'm going to go through them as I go through the talk so you don't have to remember everything all at once. But there are brain systems involved in what we call executive functioning. So, so everything you have to do, like planning and thinking and paying attention. Um, brain systems involved in emotions, bodily awareness, what we call self-related thought, or also the default mode, basically, when we're not doing something, we're not paying attention to something outside of ourselves, we're mostly paying attention to the inside of ourselves and thinking about what we need to do, um, our goals and plans and our feelings. And then also empathy. So I'm going to, because this is a, an introductory neuroscience talk, I'm going to talk about certain regions that are more heavily implicated in these things. But just know for every one of those things listed, it uses multiple, re, multiple regions in a whole network within the brain. So most of the things we do involve most of these systems. It's just when we look at the data, um, we tend to focus on certain regions. So avoid thinking that, oh, this one part of the brain is involved in this one function. That's almost never true. So this is a brain, and there are four lobes in the brain. I'm not going to go through each one right now, but the way to orient yourself is this big hump. That's the frontal lobe, and that's the front of the brain. So this is the front of the head where the eyes would be. Um, so this is the back, this is the top, and this is the bottom. Okay, when we collect data, we collect it in um, 3D cubes, and we do it by sli slicing the brain. So the slice from the top to bottom is called the axial slice. The slice from front to back is called the coronal slice. And the slice from side to side is called the sagittal slice. You won't have to know that, but just as you'll see, um, you'll see different views of the brain. So again, this is front to back. So if you're looking straight at someone's head, this is from the side of the head, and this is if you're looking top down. So there are also different kinds of images that you'll see. The black and white part is the brain structure. The darker part is called gray matter, and that's where the, the neuro, neuronal bodies are more lo localized. The white sections we call the white matter, and that's where there's a higher density of, of axons, and that's how the brain cells communicate with each other. Then the more brightly colored parts are the changes in brain function, and that's what I talked about in terms of changes in the oxygen in the blood. So um, when you see those pictures in like articles and things, what goes into that picture? So in an fMRI experiment, we measure a lot of things over time. So say this experiment, you see pictures of cats or dogs, then you see another cat, and you see another dog. And the fMRI will take a picture about every two seconds. Then what happens is that with computer processing, we take the average activity from each person. So every time they see a cat, we just average all that activity together. And then every time they see a dog, we average that activity together. 
And then we compare uh, at least two different con- conditions, and that shows a relative difference. So when a region lights up, that means this is what's more active during cats versus dogs or whatever was in the experiment. Uh, what also happens is that we average brains across people. So everyone's brain is um, a little different. We have different uh, folds within our brains. Even brain activity is different within each person. But for many types of studies, we average everything together, and you'll get one picture. But it's actually multiple time points with multiple people. Um, following up on that, so this is an image of one person's brain. You can see the detail in the gray matter and the white matter here. Um, but what happens is that it then gets standard warped, mathematically warped, to look like a standard brain. And I'm spending a lot of time on this because we're working at UCSF to change some of these methods. So I don't know if it bothers some of you, but at this point it bothers me that um, each person who's very unique and different um, g- gets made into an average brain. And sometimes I don't even know what that means. <laughs> um, Neuroscientist existential crisis. <laughs> okay, so um, okay, so the three things that we'll focus on again is focused attention to the breath, which helps to stabilize our attention and can produce feelings of calm. Uh, mindfulness of emotions uh, that helps cultivate awareness and understanding of emotions. And then finally, um, practices called loving kindness and compassion practices, which aim to cultivate positive feelings towards ourselves and other people and help relationships. Okay, so now I'm going to invite us to practice focused awareness to the breath. I'll guide us through that. Again, um, the goal is to stabilize our attention and keep our attention on the breath. Um, Almost every mindfulness intervention involves this because... It's um, a very foundational practice, and because the breath is always with us, it's a great way to center ourselves in our bodies. And towards the end, I'll also go into a different kind of meditation called open awareness, but I'll spend a little less time on that. So if you feel comfortable, um, you may close your eyes, or you may keep them open and just gently rest them. And now let's settle our minds after hearing all that information. And just gently bring your attention to what it feels like to breathe in your body. You may notice how the breath feels when you breathe in. And when you breathe out, you may notice sensations of coolness or warmth. You may notice your stomach moving up and down. You may notice the feeling of air moving through your nostrils and down the back of your throat and filling up your lungs.
and just try to stay with whatever sensations you are feeling right now. You may notice that thoughts may begin to creep in or your mind will drift somewhere else. And that is perfectly fine and is expected. And if you notice that, just recognize that your mind has gone somewhere else and then gently bring it back to the sensations of breathing. And now we may open up our attention a little bit more and just notice what else may be coming into experience. Maybe a different sensation in your body. Maybe the sound of my voice. Maybe a thought about what you need to do later today. And if you notice something else, just let your mind be present with that. Until something else may capture your attention. And to end this practice, let's bring our attention back to the breath. And just take a few more deep breaths. And then when you're ready, you may open your eyes and come back to the room. Okay, thank you. Um, can anyone share something they experienced during that meditation? A lightness in my head. It was like, uh, a, yeah, it was similar to the uh, freshness of a breath of fresh air. Okay. Mm-hmm. So a lightness and also that's similar to a breath of fresh air. Okay. Great. Can someone else share what they experienced? How many people started thinking about something else? Right. (laughs) That's very common. How many people felt something from their breath? Great. Um, Other things? Sounds? Okay. Other body sensations? Okay, great.
So as you see, um, there are many experiences during meditation, even when the goal is to do one thing. Um, so mental states are dynamic and fluctuating. So what what can happen is that you first, you know, you have the intention of paying attention to your breath, so you might feel a sensation. And then dinner. What am I having for dinner? Um, and then you catch yourself mind-wandering, and then you bring it back to the breath. And then I'm really sleepy, and sometimes you do fall asleep. And then, of course, that wonderful moment when you've discovered the answer to world peace. <laughs> And then back to the breath, and then you're back. So with fMRI, we've um, studied people who are meditating in the scanner. Again, it takes a picture every two seconds. Um, We average the brain activity together, and then we get one image of what's more active during meditation versus another state. First, I'm going to tell you some more about the networks that are involved, and then I'll show you the actual data from when people are meditating. So one I'm just going to call the, the executive network, and it's involved in what we call cognitive control and also emotion regulation. So anything that involves planning, thinking, focused attention, keeping things in memory, working towards goals, and also um, noticing and regulating emotions. So it does a lot. And the prefrontal cortex, again, is this big lobe in the front, and there are many different parts of the prefrontal cortex. Then because we're focused on the breath or other body sensations, regions involved in bodily awareness are involved. And so one major region in that network is called the insula, and it monitors internal conditions of the body. So all of these images here are from many, many different experiments that look at uh, brain activity during pain, different types of temperature, when people are paying attention to their heartbeat, decision-making, pleasant music, maternal uh, maternal feelings of care for their babies, and what it feels like to know something. So that to me, it just sounds like almost everything. <laughs> and it's also activated in things like doing math in your head. So um, the main author, um, Bud Craig, his big um, theory is that the, especially the anterior insula, the front part of the insula, is just involved in conscious awareness in general. So being aware of any part of your experience. Then um, there's also something called the default network, which is more activated when we're mind-wandering. And when we're mind-wandering, we're usually thinking about ourselves in some way. So the network's activated when we think about our own memories, when we're thinking about the future and planning, uh, when we're thinking about what's going on in other people's minds, which we call theory of mind. You know, what are they thinking? Why did they look at me like that? What do I have to do to make them like me? and then also moral decision-making. So how do you make your decisions in a way that feels right to you? So there are two um, big re- main regions that are involved in that. One is called the medial prefrontal cortex. So that's another part of the prefrontal cortex. And then this back region here is called the posterior cingulate cortex. And these are both within the middle slice of the brain. Okay, so one of the uh, very early studies on... Um, This kind of meditation was very influential. And so they did an eight-week mindfulness course where they learned meditation with many different kinds of experiences. Um, But what they did was um, ask people, they showed people words. So words like calm or intelligent or stubborn. So words that we can typically use to describe people. And they were asked to either focus to focus on their experience of that word, so maybe the thoughts and feelings that triggered, um, but not to think about the word itself too much, or to be in what's called narrative focus, so getting lost in their thoughts about what that word means for them as a person. 
And so when they um, were an experiential focus, the people who learned meditation had much more activation in that insular region I was talking about that's involved in paying attention to internal bodily sensations. When they were asked to do narrative focus, they had less activation in the region involved in the default network or thinking about themselves. And so it seems like part of what meditation training is doing is helping us um, get out of that mode where we're thinking about the stories of what's happening and then getting deeper into the actual experience of what's happening right now. What am I feeling in my body? What are some of my reactions? Um, some people have looked at the, the more dynamic fluctuations of brain activity as people are meditating. So as we experienced, we had attention to the breath, um, and that involved executive regions like the prefrontal cortex. Then at some point, our minds wandered, and that activates the default network. And then at some point, we had the conscious awareness that our minds had wandered, and then that activates the insula, which is involved in conscious awareness. And then finally, um, we shifted our attention back to the breath. And that, again, involves executive networks to bring our attention back. I know some people have taken this even further, where they, they can actually take the activity that's happening in real time from the scanner in the posterior cingulate cortex, which is part of that default network, and then they can visually represent that to whoever's meditating in the scanner. So they had both experienced meditators and people with very little experience see what their uh, default network was doing. And then uh, over time of the experiment, they can plot the activation of that region. So with the default region, less means they're less engaged in their own thoughts and potentially more engaged in the breath or whatever else they're paying attention to. And this is done by Judd Brewer's group at um, the Center for Mindfulness. Okay, so this is called real-time feedback, which is one of the methods in fMRI research. And they chose the PCC. Um, this is an example of what the PCC looked like in a non-meditator. So even when they get feedback that their um, default network is active, they're actually able to then go back into a state of awareness but then they, their minds wander again. So that's what these red bars mean. Their, piece, their default network is active again. So they, came to see, they seem to keep fluctuating back and forth. However, when an experienced meditator gets this kind of feedback, they fluctuate back and forth a little bit in the beginning, but then they can stay in the zone, basically. They're staying with their breath or whatever they're paying attention to. And this is the run one means the first part of the experiment. They're usually five to six minutes long. And by run four, the fourth part of the experiment, they're basically almost always in breath awareness. So that suggests with uh, practice and training, we are able to reach these kinds of mental states more consistently. Okay, so focused attention to the breath enhances activation in networks um, involved in attention and bodily awareness, and it decreases activation in networks involved in mind wandering. Um, again, most studies average data across many trials and across uh, multiple people or only use one region of the network like that last study we looked at. So at UCSF, we want to take all of this information and just bring it a step further. All this groundwork has been laid, but how do we, how do we get even better at measuring what's happening? So uh, with a collaboration at the UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Medicine, um, we're collaborating with the Neuroscience Imaging Center and Dr. Adam Ghazali's lab. Um, he's an expert in cognitive neuroscience, especially in brain training with video games. And he's also um, developed a meditation app, which trains this exact skill we just went over. 
Uh, he's also well known for creating very beautiful images of uh, brain activity that they're developing into also feedback loops. So how do we get even better at our measure, measurement of what's happening? Um, so what my work is doing um, during postdoc is to use sophisticated pattern recognition techniques. And pattern recognition is a very established technique that is used for handwriting recognition, uh, facial recognition on Facebook. You know how you can like put your mouse over someone's face and it, it kind of knows who to tag. I'm still like very surprised by this when it happens. Like, oh my god, um, it's very smart. Um, and people have already started applying this to brain data. And it's um, used in vision research, attention research, um, starting, um, starting to be in emotion research, and now we're applying it to meditation research as well. So basically, each person has a unique neural fingerprint. So all of our fingerprints are different from each other's. Um, and similarly, in our brains, our brain structure is slightly different from each other, and then our brain activity is slightly different from each other. So we want to use that uniqueness and then apply it to brain states during meditation. So each person is going to have their specific pattern during mind wandering. So you, you might have the prefrontal cortex, the posterior cingulate cortex, and maybe other things are important as well. And then for attention, everyone's going to have their own unique brain signature. So a good example of this is so um, Dr. Ghazali, uh, who I'm working with, he says when he pays attention to his breath, he also sees a, an eagle flapping its wings. He's a very visual person, um, so he's likely to also have um, activity in the visual cortex also going on. Another meditator I'm working with, uh, Musha Makita, was trained in a Zen tradition where she counts her breath. So she's more likely to have um, auditory activation. And so we're going to use that, the power of that individual variability to see what's going on in each person's brain moment by moment. And then with this, we can measure how much are you paying attention to your breath, how many times is your mind wandering, when you wander, how long are you gone, and uh, we hope this will, will just give us a much better idea of what type of meditation helps different people and what skills are really useful for better health outcomes. And so we're currently running this study. If you're interested in participating, you can go to embodystudy.com. Um, and we're looking for people with at least five years of meditation experience or very little experience. And so now we'll move on to meditation and emotions. And these practices are aimed at uh, training balanced responses to all of our emotional experiences and also accessing the knowledge that emotions are trying to tell us. So emotions can be thought of as signals that are responses to the environment and are instantiated in the body. So um, some people are not aware of this, um, but okay. So there are different things we encounter in the environment, right? Like a cute kitten or a scary snake. And then our brains make a certain interpretation of that stimulus. And then um, emotional signals are sent throughout the body. So um, if the snake scares you, your heart would start beating faster. You would start sweating. Your digestion would shut down. Um, your rep reproductive systems would also shut down because your body is basically getting ready to flee or fight. Um, that activates more of this, what's called the sympathetic nervous system. If you see the cat and you really like cats, it would probably activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which calms you down and, and makes you more relaxed and ready to bond with other people or animals. On the other hand, if you're deathly allergic to cats, it would activate your sympathetic nervous system and you would run away. And you also might be a snake charmer and really like the snake. So 
So again, it just shows how different um, people are and how we respond to things. Um, there was a study where they asked people to color in parts of the body that they associated with different emotions. It's a little hard to see. This is anger, fear, disgust, happiness. This one's love. And it's really striking to see the difference between happiness and love, which is very brightly colored throughout the body. And this one right here is depression. And so... Um, because these signals get sent to all of our organs, it's, it, it's basically a full body response. And most people growing up were not really taught about this. And so emotions instead can feel very threatening. Um, people can have panic attacks um, or they can just feel very uncomfortable. They don't know how to interpret their emotions and also good ones. So even good emotions can be activating. So there are people who want to keep the good emotions going and, uh, ignore other things that they need to focus on. So a lot of my work as a clinical psychologist, when I was working with people with mindfulness, it was often to train their attention to um, be in touch with emotional signals and then slowly with time to learn how to interpret these emotional signals. So I'm going to lead us through um, a short exercise for this and just participate if you, are, uh, if you feel like it. So you can... Take a comfortable position in your chair. We're just going to take some time to be present with our experience of whatever emotions may be present. And because emotions are expressed throughout the body, we'll be focusing on different parts of our bodies. So first, let's bring our attention to our face. And just notice what it feels like around your eyebrows and your forehead. Notice if there's any tension in those areas. Now let's bring our attention to our jaw and cheekbones. And our lips. Notice any sensations in those areas. Any tingling, clenching. Tension, as well as relaxation and calm. Our nervous systems are wired to show emotions through facial expressions. And so we hold a lot of emotional information in those areas. Now let's move our attention to the shoulders and the back area. Again, noticing any tension or pressure, any tingling, clenching, stiffness. 
just bring gentle awareness to those areas. And now let's bring our attention to the throat area. And now a little lower to the heart and chest area. We can hold a lot of emotional information in the chest area. Just notice any tingling, pressure. Clenching, openness, warmth. And try to bring a caring, gentle attention to whatever you're feeling. No need to push this away or cling on to whatever you're feeling. Just try to be with whatever's present. And finally, let's bring our attention to the stomach and gut area. Many emotional signals are sent to these areas of our bodies. So again, just notice whatever sensations may be present. Again, not pushing it away or resisting or grabbing onto any kind of feeling, but just gently noticing and accepting whatever is there. And thank you for taking this time to practice when you're ready. You may open your eyes and return to the room. Okay. Can anyone share anything they noticed during that practice? Yes? Well, my body just became more relaxed. I think part of the body moving. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. So just bringing awareness seemed to relax and calm that area. Yeah, we hold a lot there, right? Any other comments or reflections? Yeah? Right, so you're more in touch with the, I like to call it the raw data of emotions rather than the words around it. 
And and words and and labeling emotions, those are um, next steps um, to try to organize and understand our experience. Um, But we don't have time for that practice right now. Feel free to ask me more questions later. This is my favorite, so (laughs) I love emotions, so (laughs) feel free to ask me later. Um, I think I'm going to go kind of quickly through this part. So one of some of the strongest findings from mindfulness uh, courses are that they reduce... uh, Symptoms of depression, anxiety, chronic pain, stress, some medical symptoms, and also general psychological symptoms. So there's one conceptualization of emotions that I find really helpful. So there are emotions that involve threat and protection. So if you see that snake or someone you don't like or a car coming towards you, Um, then there's the system's towards drive. So what do you want to do with your life? What do you like to eat? What are the things you want to go for? And then also the contentment system, which involves safety and connection. And so mindfulness practices try to train awareness and acceptance of all of these experiences rather than wanting some and not wanting others, which can create a lot of resistance and mental pain. So what are some of the neural effects of these kinds of practices? This is a big oversimplification, um, but there's a system called the limbic system, which is also known popularly as the, as the reptile brain. The one that's more involved in moving towards things I like, things that feel good, um, is, involves what's called the nucleus accumbens. And then one that's more about moving away or aversion um, is called the amygdala. Um, and the amygdala's Amygdala is really involved in anything that's important in your life, so that's both positive and negative things, but it seems particularly important and sensitive to things that we do not want or want are th- we find threatening. So again, emotions are complex. There are many, many regions involved in them. If you want to ask me more later, feel free. So the amygdala detects things that are important in the environment. Um, when these things are threatening, it can induce the fight, flight, or freeze response. So things um, that activate wanting to fight back, wanting to flee towards safety, or freezing, or playing dead. I'm not going to go through everything here, but um, when the amygdala is activated, it sends downstream signals to many other parts of the brain, which then activate the behavioral signals we see, like um, heart beating faster, or freezing, or fighting, or breathing more quickly. So again, just emphasizing this is a full body response. And so what mindfulness tries to do is, sometimes we can get into these feeling, thought, behaving loops. So I'm going to come up with an example of the cat. So if you really hate cats, and say you just met a new friend, and you didn't know that your friend had a cat, and they invited you over, and they didn't know you were deathly allergic to cats, you could have a really strong fear response, and then have thoughts about why did this person not tell me, I hate this person, and then you might um, send them a nasty email or text later or yell at them, right? And that will cause more bad emotions. Um, and so we all have some version of this in our lives with, with the things that trigger us, right? And so what we try to do is approach it in a different way. Okay, let me slow down my emotional response. I hate cats. I actually love cats. but I, um, And let me try to apply a different habit. So, okay, I'm noticing my stomach is clenching. And I, I'm, like, about to have a freak out. Okay, let me name what's going on. Okay, I'm really upset that there's a cat here. Uh, let me try to understand my friend's point of view. She had no idea that I'm allergic to cats, et cetera, et cetera. Just slowing down the, the responses and at the end, hopefully having a better outcome. So we like to think of this as meditation can lessen the additional layers of suffering we can sometimes add to our initial responses. So 
recognizing there's a cat could end up in a huge fight, or it could just end up in saying, can we hang out somewhere else because I'm allergic. It can also improve emotional understanding to recognize needs. So it was sending a really important signal, right? My health is in danger. And so we need to listen to those signals and recognize them. So oftentimes people can ignore or suppress emotional signals um, because, because of a lot of different factors. And over time, it can build up in our bodies and then result in other problems. So it is adapt- sometimes people are like, why do I want to pay attention to things that really hurt? And it's, it's so that we can have a better understanding of what we um, need to do in our lives to inform better decision-making or adaptive actions that people also call wise actions. So um, in one study, they looked at brain structure, and they found that um, eight weeks of mindfulness training did increase uh, gray matter in the amygdala that Reach and I talked about. And then that was associated with reports of decreased stress. So actually more amygdala gray matter seemed to be associated with less reported stress. Um, This finding was really... Uh, interesting and important. From what I've heard, this isn't being followed up with other people doing similar things, and so that's why we just need to keep um, doing more research and seeing what holds up over time. And then in this work in Richie Davidson's lab in Wisconsin, um, they showed both meditators and non-meditators negative pictures, and so the amygdala has been shown to act, be activated to these negative pictures. And um, there was the amygdala. And we can actually separate the time course of the response. So how do you react initially when you see something you fear? And then how do you recover from that? So the goal of meditation is not to kind of wipe out feelings or make them go away. People still have their natural emotional responses, but what happens is the people that have more meditation experience are recovering faster. So their their minds are able to settle down more quickly than the people with less meditation experience. This How fast they were able to recover was associated with lower self-reports of neuroticism, which is kind of just being worried about a lot of things. And then also lower um, ratings of pain when they were in another experiment um, where they were given a pain stimulus. And um, faster amygdala recovery seems to be more associated with mindfulness practice, which is more of that um, being aware of many experiences as they're occurring, and also compassion practice. There was no association with um, the amount of focused attention practice. So again, it shows like... um, these practices are training different skills, and that can have differential effects on how we perceive things. In summary, meditation training may increase amygdala gray matter and decrease stress, and also increase amygdala recovery to negative events. And this may represent changes in the way our brains respond to threatening stimuli. So it, I think it's encouraging. The more people practice, the more people engage um, in meditation, you can really sh- shift the way your brain responds to what's going on. Okay, so the last type of meditation um, is loving-kindness and compassion meditation. The goal is to improve your relationship to yourself and to other people. And loving-kindness just means wishing well-being for others and yourself. And compassion is the flip side of that, so caring for and wishing relief from suffering. So people like to say that compassion is when loving-kindness meets suffering. It's the natural extension of that. So again, um, if you're willing, we'll do a practice right now, and we'll practice loving kindness for someone we love and also for ourselves. 
So you can close your eyes. And let's take a few deep breaths to clear our minds. And now bring to mind someone that you really care for, someone that you feel connected to. And you can make you can envision their face and maybe a memory of a time you spent with them. And just notice how you feel in their presence. Notice how your face feels. You might have a slight smile. Notice how your heart and chest area feels. You may feel a little more open and calm. And notice what it feels like to be in the presence of their caring for you. And now we're going to extend that same caring back to them. And to do that, we can use phrases to help ground our attention. I'm going to use some of the more classic phrases. If you want to try this at home, you can use whatever phrases, words, symbols work for you. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. If you wish, you can envision a golden light going from your heart to their heart to extend feelings of love and caring. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. And now let's also include ourselves in wishing feelings of loving kindness and compassion. May we be safe. May we be happy. 
May we be healthy. May we live with ease. May we be safe. May we be happy. May we be healthy. May we live with ease. And we'll just spend a few more moments. And you may include anyone else you would like in these wishes of loving and kindness. (coughs) And when you're ready, you may open your eyes and return to the room. So what did people notice during that practice? The weather outside. The weather outside? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Anything with um, the loved one or the phrases? Thank you for sharing. Wow. Um, yeah, so again, people have very varied experiences to these different practices. Um, some you may resonate more with others. For a long time, this was my main practice. Um, I've heard other people respond that dramatically to this one. Other people, it's um, it actually can be triggering. And so the idea is, is to find things that work for you and notice what your mind resonates with. Thank you for sharing. Um, And so uh, part of my motivation for studying compassion and loving kindness is that our relationships really shape our mental health and our physical health. And um, things like bullying uh, put people at higher risk for depression, anxiety, suicidal behaviors. And the quality and the quantity of our relationships even impact things like... um, mortality, which I wasn't aware of until I started researching this. And it has as much of an impact on health as factors like um, drinking alcohol and smoking can have negative effects. So I just thought this is really important. Um, It's as much of a health issue as as some other things. So by practicing compassion and loving kindness, it can be a route to um, healthier relationships. So in science, we have to define things. So the way we define compassion is the feeling that arises when you're witnessing another suffering 
And that also motivates a subsequent desire to help. So there's a certain situation where you're viewing suffering. Then there's an emotion or motivation, um, a feeling, and also a desire to help. And then um, ultimately, hopefully, an action. So some kind of action to help that person. And so we like to think that Compassion is just like any other muscle. Um, in the full practice that we uh, gave to people, they also practice with strangers, so someone you just see on the street or the grocery store, and also someone you have difficulty with, so someone who may have rejected you or a difficult coworker, um, so someone that actually brings up some negative feelings. And the idea is that compassion and love is not just just for our closest circle, that it can be extended towards other people. Um, and how would that transform our, our lives and our communities if p- more people practice this? So, again, people are practicing compassion within their minds, but we think it'll actually translate into more real-world helping behavior. In compassion experts, they listen to sounds of people suffering in the scanner, and they showed much more activation in the anterior insula, so that region involved in bodily awareness, emotional responses, as well as empathy. Um, for my dissertation, my question was, well, what about people like you and me? Can uh, So I don't have tens of thousands of hours to practice. I don't know. Um, what if we just practiced for two weeks every day for 30 minutes? Um, and the study was run in Madison, Wisconsin. So is, is that enough um, to change both our brain activity and then how we treat other people? So how do we study this? Um, we took people from the Madison community and randomly assigned them to either compassion training or a control training where they learned how to reinterpret, reinterpret negative events to be, more, um, to be less stressful. And we measured their brain activity both before and after the training, so this uh, helped us determine how much their brains changed. Um, we also administered an altruism task afterwards to see how generous they would be, and I'll describe that. And they also were able to train on the internet, um, so could do it at their own convenience. So we came up with a new uh, behavioral economics paradigm to try to measure changes in um, altruistic behavior. And so in behavioral economics, they measure social uh, behaviors through monetary exchanges. So in this game, there are three players. Player A gets $10, player B gets $0, and player C gets $5. And in the first move of the game, player A shares only one out of $10 with player B, and that's considered an unfair split. Um, player C then can spend any, for, for every dollar she spends, it takes away $2 from player A and then redistributes it to player B. Um, so we call this the redistribution game. Okay. And what we found is after two weeks, the control group did give some of their money to help out that stranger, but the compassion group gave even more, and this is a significant difference. They gave on average $1.12 versus $0.62, cents, so it was almost twice as much money. In the scanner, before and after the training, um, they saw pictures of people suffering, um, so people in physical pain, emotional pain, war scenes, and then um, neutral pictures, so people like out in a field. And so based on our theories, we thought um, compassion training should increase empathy or the awareness and sometimes a shared experience of someone else's suffering. So sometimes you feel something similar to the person you're witnessing. And then also emotional regulation. So it's not just about feeling others' pain. It's transforming that awareness of another's pain into a more positive response where you're caring and concerned for that person and also decreasing whatever negative responses you may be having. So there's some people who respond to others' pain by being very um, uh, overwhelmed or um, um, sometimes callous even. And so when I 
I had the um, honor of meeting His Holiness the Dalai Lama and, sh- and showing him this study. And when he, hear- when he heard about it, he called it effortful compassion because these are people who are just learning. It's not always a natural response, and so you have to work at it. And so that effortful part um, was reflecting the cognitive control areas we need, which I'll talk about later. So from the empathy literature, there are regions that we call um, experience sharing or mirror neuron regions. And that means that when you see someone do something, that region's active also when you yourself do it. So they originally found these um, these neurons in monkeys because they would be active when the monkey ate a, a banana and then also when the monkey saw a person eat the banana. <laughs> so it's like resonating um, with both situations. And so one key region in that network is called the parietal cortex. And so that's actually the strongest finding we had, is that we found increases in the parietal cortex, which is involved in understanding the experience of other people. And the more people could increase activity in that region, the more they ended up giving in that redistribution game. So the more you can change your emotional response, the more it actually results in greater prosocial behavior. Uh, We also saw increases in the prefrontal cortex, which is involved in emotion regulation. So I think that um, being open to other suffering is actually a very strong way to be because you are opening yourself up to more negative information. And so you need to use cognitive control areas to manage that emotional response. And so we also found um, changes in regions involved in um, the reward system that I mentioned before, so going towards things you like. And so the more the prefrontal cortex was communicating with the nucleus accumbens, the more people also ended up giving in that game. So they're able to re, they're, in, they're approaching people who are suffering in a different way, moving towards them and wanting to help them rather than being af- um, afraid or distressed. Uh, we also found that the people are actually visually engaging more with suffering. So um, we measured where their eyes were, were on the pictures. And people who learn compassion spent more time looking at the emotional parts of the pictures of suffering than neutral images. So they, they show a preference for looking at stimuli of suffering, whereas the uh, control group did not show that. And what was really interesting is that even though they're looking more at the more distressing parts of the pictures, that's associated with less activation in the amygdala, which is involved in the, the fight or flight or freeze response. So they're, they're changing um, the way their emotional systems are acting. Okay, so this is freely available for download. Um, and the study came out about three years ago, and it's been um, downloaded by over 12,000 people in many different countries. And so I, I really like to share this and have anyone... Uh, try it if they want. So that's at the Center for Healthy Minds website. And just a quick note, um, so I've been using the terms empathy versus compassion, and there are scientists that are distinguishing those two states. So empathy being more resonating with someone's suffering, and then compassion being a friendliness and caring towards that suffering. And they're showing that people can actually learn these different strategies, even within the same people. And so within um, the healthcare world, there's a term called compassion fatigue when healthcare providers get 
burned out from seeing so much suffering. And the scientists are saying that that's kind of a misnomer and they should actually call that empathy fatigue. So you're resonating too much with other suffering. And they're hoping that training people in compassion can help them be more resilient to um, seeing so many people with suffering. Okay, so in this experiment they showed people videos of people suffering and people who learn empathy training then report more negative emotions from, pre, from before training to after training. Um, the compassion training increases more positive emotions in response to those videos of suffering and then it also um, dampens the negative emotions back down. Okay, and then different neural systems are involved in empathy versus compassion training. So empathy training had more activation in the insula, which can be involved in processing negative emotions. And then compassion training had more activity um, in the ventral striatum, which is part of that reward system I was talking about before. Okay, so what I hope people can take away is that training our internal mental lives can have positive effects on our minds, our health, and our relationships. And thank you to all of my mentors and advisors at UCSF. Thank you to Rick and to Adam Ghazali and Larissa Duncan and Maria Chow and all my collaborators. Um, all right, so now we can open up for questions. Yes. Okay. So the first question was, who are these long-term meditators? What traditions are they from and how much have they meditated? Um, so we'd have to look at the specific papers because each p paper has a different population. I know for the initial studies in Richie Davidson's lab, they um, got people from the Tibetan tradition um, and flew them out from India. And these were people with like tens of thousands of hours of experience. So they were like the very, very high level long-term meditators. Um, now we're moving to, people are recruiting long-term meditators from, from this country. Um, so people who have a regular meditation practice may have done retreat time, may have taken vows within this country. And that, it's a different culture and a different population. So sometimes people are finding things like they are, their neural responses are improving with meditation practice, like that study I showed you. However, when compared to the normal controls, they're just, they have the same amount of anxiety and neuroticism. So it's like they started out more anxious, but now they've, they've um, been able to calm down. So they're, they're very different populations um, and different traditions for sure. Yeah. And as far as, you know, the idea of controlling your mind, Mm -hmm. Has there been any study to look at their brains to see if it compares at all to meditators? Okay, so the question is about people in the military who go through meditation training? No, no. I'm, or just, I'm just thinking, are there other groups of people that 
Similar responses to long-term meditators. Okay, so there's one study um, um, that looked at a form of interoception, so paying attention to internal bodily sensations, looking at heartbeat detection, and the experiment was you listen to a sound, and it's either playing at the same rate as your heartbeat is, or it's playing off, off of your heartbeat, like not at the same time as your heartbeat. Um, they measured two kinds of meditators, so kundalini yoga practitioners, and then I think Tibetan practitioners, and then also um, um, normal controls. And everyone performed the same on this task, but the meditators thought they did much better. So that was the difference. <laughs> um, um, we'd have to look closer at that. So, so there's a bias within the scientific literature where people don't report what we call null findings as often. So if we don't see differences, it's much harder to publish those results. So even if people write it up, journals don't really like to report it. And so uh, what we see in science is more often the, the things that work out. So that is a good question. Yeah, I would, yeah. I would imagine you have to be intentional to get that group of people who have been in the military X amount of years or a certain. I don't. I just thought of people who you know I've met who've been in the military who have extreme um, mm-hmm. yeah. emotions and I was wondering if there's any relation. Yeah, that would be a really interesting study to compare different types of experts in in a certain task. Yeah. Thank you. Yes? The relationship between um, anxiety and and the meditation. Um, I'm I'm wondering if if, if the combination is being done of of studying studying the meditation state along with the... um, you know, corticosteroids in the in the blood, or you know, epinephrine or ACTH or something. Are those things being put together? You know, what are they find out? They are. I would. Uh, I would defer to Rick on that question. That's not my area of expertise. People are definitely looking at that. Um, there are experiments where we intentionally stress people out. So there's something called the Trier Social Stress Test, which this would qualify as, actually. Uh, it's a public speaking. Public speaking in front of um, people in lab coats who are do not look happy at all. <laughs> or for people who don't mind that, there's mental math. And they make you subtract the number 17 from 1,396 and tell you to go faster and then stop you when you make mistakes. It's like pretty horrible. Um, so they have people do that um, and see how their stress response, and that very reliably activates the stress response and increases cortisol. Um, and uh, people have studied how mindfulness training impacts that response. Rick, do you want to talk about the findings? I'm not sure. Were you at the. I gave a talk two weeks ago where we covered some of this. Yeah, yeah. So because I think a lot of other people were there, we can talk a little bit about this uh, maybe afterwards. But um, yeah, so we've been doing a bunch of study of this, and um, it, some of the responses we are seeing differences. For example, in autonomic nervous system responses, we're not seeing as much difference in cortisol. Thanks. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, that's a really good question. I like I like this. Um, 
So the question was, does the MRI make horrible clanging sounds? And yes, it does. <laughs> and for different types of scans, the clanging is different. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it breaks the question what's actually happening in these brain pictures we're seeing, right? It's in the context of the MRI. Um, it can be kind of uncomfortable in there. They're lying still. The sounds are very, very loud. Um, we give them earplugs to protect their hearing, but you can still hear it, and sometimes you can feel the MRI shaking a little bit because the vibrations are so um, strong. So it's definitely not what, the same thing as what's happening in your bedroom or on retreat or something. But because we're comparing different kinds of mind states, it's all relative, right? So if we compare paying attention to your breath to, to just mind-wandering, within that same environment, then we should just get a relative difference. But it's true, there might be some people who just can't really focus in there, and then we'd have to make a judgment call of whether we're actually measuring what we think we're measuring. Thank you. Um, okay. Uh, can meditation improve like, executive function uh, development? Uh, in other words, if, if you have a, uh, a person that maybe is has slower development of executive function, for example, an 18, 19, 20-year-old young man with ADHD, would meditation be a, a practice that could help develop that at a quicker rate? Uh, that's a really good question. So the question was, can meditation help uh, people with cognitive development issues? So for example, yeah, uh, late um, teenagers to early 20s, maybe young men with ADHD. Um, that's not my area of expertise, so it's not coming to me right now. I think people are really interested in that kind of, um, those kinds of interventions. I know people have been training kids in working memory training through video games. So um, like rocks floating in space and a certain pattern appears, and then you have to repeat the pattern, and they're working on interventions like that for ADHD. And I think it's mixed results right now, but I'm not an expert in that, so I don't want to say. I, I know people are interested in mindfulness-based um, interventions for, for kids with autism, and that's just starting. Um, with ADHD, I, I would have to look that up. I don't know. relationship to meditation and chronic pain and chronic insomnia? Are you better person <laughs> So the, the question was about meditation for chronic pain and insomnia. So I know one of, one of the stronger findings in, in the literature is that meditation does help chronic pain, but maybe Rick has more specific details about that. Yeah, I I can just say that, that that's uh, the air, whole area of mindfulness and pain is one that there's a lot of work being done on it. And um, uh, there are just two examples I'd, I'd give you. One of them is a study recently, that was a pretty big study looking at people with chronic low back pain. And they compared people getting mindfulness versus just physical therapy alone. Um, and the mindfulness looked at least as as good as just getting the physical therapy approach alone, potentially with some advantages. And um, th so that 
it provided some support for the idea that some of the work with pain that you can do during mindfulness, which probably really involves working with what we call the central processing of pain, what's going on in the brain around the pain and the interpretation of that pain and what it means, um, that that can actually change the experience of, of chronic pain. There's other work being done um, that I think is really fascinating by uh, Fadal Zadon, who is a researcher at Wake Forest. He's using fMRI methods that are somewhat similar to what Helen was just talking about, and it's also looking at the effects of mindfulness training on the experience of pain. And he's shown that it very clearly does affect the experience of pain when you look at what's actually happening in the brain itself and that that is happening through a different pathway than what happens, for example, with, with opiates. It's not blocked by things that block the opiate pathways in the brain, which was actually his original hypothesis. So it looks like there's some other process involved that's not through using the, the opiate system, which is the typical system in the brain that's used to um, to decrease the, the experience of pain. So there's a lot of work going on with this. There's... I think some some really interesting findings, but a lot more to be done. Okay, yes. I'm a sound healer, and I work with the nervous system, so I'm wondering if there are studies based in the effect of sound on the amygdala or the sympathetic nervous system or the parasympathetic nervous system and using it to shift (coughs) someone's emotions that can be conscious, that can be uh, registered with MRIs or other... Yeah, so the question was, um, can sounds be used to affect emotions? Is there research Empirical research on how sound affects emotions by shifting the nervous system. By shifting the nervous system and like brain signals? Yes. Okay. There is a whole field on that, and I am not an expert in that. Um, I'm trying to remember. They've played all kinds of music to people, like classical music or like heavy rock, to see the, the differences. Um, I know that. Some newer research has been funded within the contemplative um, research uh, field where we wanted to look at other types of contemplative practices like chanting and like drumming and things like that. So people are starting to do that research because definitely sound is one, one avenue through shifting feelings and also contemplative mind states. But I, I don't know the, the research offhand. <laughs> Sorry. Yes? of stillness or the techniques we've been seeing the last three tonight and the last two weeks requires some mental activity uh, could you when you're looking at the neurology of the brain in these kinds of people is there a big difference between a person with a still mind and someone who's actively performing these techniques so the question is is there a difference um, the brains of people who have a still mind versus practicing the kinds of techniques we learned tonight? Okay. Um, I guess I would have to understand more what you mean by still mind. Um, if you remember that one graph from the, from the meditator that was all blue because their uh, posterior cingulate cortex in the default network was 
was decreased for like very long periods of time for like four minutes in a row, that might be stillness for that person, but we'd have to talk to that person. So they're, they're working on methods to combine what people are saying are happening while they're meditating with what the brain is saying is happening and trying to figure out where do these worlds meet, right? Um, so I think we would have to think more about what, what is the scientific operation, opera- <laughs> I can't say it. How do we operationalize stillness and what does that mean? Because I think with almost any of these practices, um, if people stay with it long enough, people can reach states of stillness. I, I just don't know what that means for, right. That's a really good question. Um, so the question is about um, sleeping when attempting to practice mindfulness, and that can be a very common response. So when we say we're training people in mindfulness, what are we actually training, right? And what skills are actually more active and what is just benefits from being able to sleep more when you're sleep-deprived, right? Um, and I think we're just working on all those nuances. So what we're working on with our new study is to be able to learn what different mind states look like for different people. And so right now we're just starting with uh, paying attention to the breath and mind wandering. But another one could be sleep, right? So then we can catch when people are sleeping. So then we can measure how many times were they actually paying attention and how much of this was sleeping. And you know maybe sleeping does provide even more benefit because like much of the population is sleep deprived. <laughs> Maybe people just need to sleep more. <laughs> Although John Kabat-Zinn would say sacrifice um, sleep for meditation. <laughs> um, uh, to teachers would say, because I, I slept a lot <laughs> in my first <laughs> class. And the teachers say, it's, you know, if you need to sleep, sleep. If you notice yourself sleeping, notice. And then you, then you make a conscious choice. Do I want to pick myself back up? You can open your eyes when you notice yourself falling asleep. If you really need to sleep, just sleep. It's also training this kind of awareness that's still and calm and alert. And so often in our culture, if we're resting, then we're just out, right? We're either going, 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 or we're, we're out. And so it's training a different kind of mental state that's calm and also alert. It's hard, I know. <laughs> Yes? One other question. Um, what I'm looking for is the relationship between my chakra meditation and what you call emotion meditation. I wasn't clear on what emotion meditation really was. It sounded like you were talking about different parts of your body. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if that related to the chakra points. Um, so the question is, what is the 
relationship or similarities or differences between chakra meditation and uh, meditating on emotional signals. And I, f- I do not have enough experience in chakra meditation to, to know how to answer that. Um, it's true that the chakra points are in alignment with those centers I was talking about. And so people who have more experience that would probably make claims that chakras and emotions are related. Um, with the emotions, I'm thinking more about the physiological signals from, from organs in the body that, like I showed, the amygdala sends signals to the stomach and to the heart and to the skin. Um, so that it was more of a physiological basis, and I'm not sure how people um, in chakra meditation would talk about it. Um, I think we... Okay, you want to... We're getting close to 8.30. I think we have time for maybe one more question, and then I want to suggest that we just uh, break down more informally if there are more questions for Helen. Yes. Uh, I, I understand that meditation is good and it's beneficial, but have there been any quantitative analyses? For instance, if you are uh, practicing it for anxiety, is it more beneficial than going out for a walk or listening to music or uh, doing some manual activity? Okay, so the question is, for symptoms of anxiety, is meditation more beneficial than listening to music or going for a walk or doing a manual activity? And I would say, um, I don't know if all those control conditions have been administered. I think there are some studies of, like, mindfulness versus exercise. And those tend, I think it depends on the measure you're looking at. Some will show equivalent effects and some will show benefits of mindfulness or benefits of exercise depending on the outcome and I would say on an individual basis that each person is different and each person should learn try different things and learn what works for them and I think mindfulness could help that process because it helps helps you learn more about your experiences and get in touch with your experiences thanks All right. I want to thank Helen again for a great presentation You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.